1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. All right. Lord, we pray that you'd help us tonight. God, pray that you'd help me, God, Lord, to get across, Lord, what I'm trying to explain. God, already, uh, Lord, struggling a little bit, God, to get my mind wrapped around things. God, Lord, a little bit distracted about different things that are going on, Lord, in my own head. Pray that you'd help me to concentrate. God, pray that you'd give me clarity of thought. And Lord, most of all, God, I pray that your word would be magnified. God, pray that you would receive glory and honor to your own name. Lord, you're certainly worth, God, uh, preaching about. Lord, you're, certain worth, you're certainly worthy, God, to be, uh, Lord, considered tonight. Lord, in the midst of all that's going on in the country, Lord, and in our state, God, we're so thankful, Lord, for your word. Thankful, God, for an anchor that we have, God, Lord. Thankful, God, for the stability, God, Lord, that the word of God produces in our hearts. God, pray that you'd help us to still ourselves for a little bit tonight. And God, turn our hearts to you, Lord, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We read the whole chapter this morning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the issue that Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is not an issue that is new to the church at Corinth. In other words, it's been around, the problem of fornication has been around for a very long time. Needless to say, if you've read your Bible through the book of Genesis, you can spot that early on. And let me say, in addition to that, the, the particular type of fornication uh, that is going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's not something that's new. If you hold your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and go back to Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus 18, and look in verse 6. <clears throat> Leviticus 18, verse 6. The Bible says, None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother that shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. So for sake of decency and brevity all at the same time, we'll just, it'll, it'll suffice to say that this uh, person in consideration, under consideration in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, as well as Leviticus 18, uh, verse 8 is a stepmother, okay? And we'll just leave it at that. So this particular thing that you're addressed, that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and consequently in the church at Corinth is something that God addressed a long time ago under the law of Moses. Specifically, it's not that God just came out with a bunch of rules and said, don't do X. God was very specific on don't do X, and here's subpoint one, here's subpoint two, here's subpoint three, and all the way down to subpoint 29 and 30. God was very explicit on why you don't do this. He said, if you uncover the nakedness of your stepmother, he said, it's your father's nakedness. God said, don't do it. Well, what happens if that takes place? Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The Bible says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. <clears throat> That's pretty stiff. 
Verse 11, And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness, nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So God's remedy for the situation, listen to me very closely, in the Old Testament, God's remedy in, under the Old Testament law for what Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the remedy was death. You eliminate them. You put them to death. Well, that's not exactly what Paul recommends. That's not Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth. So we'll get to that here in a second. But let me just point out simply this simple fact. The God of the Old Testament is still the same God of the New Testament. Just because you come from Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it doesn't mean that God has softened His stance towards fornication. It doesn't mean that God has softened His stance towards this particular aspect of fornication. It's very plain. What God said to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Leviticus chapter 18 and 20 there is a similarity. Now, granted, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you're not putting anybody to death. But in, on that same token, you are eliminating the offender. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But what you have in 1 Corinthians 5 is Paul's dealing with a situation that pops up at the church at Corinth that God already addressed several thousands of years earlier. And when you compare the two passages, the one thing that becomes blatantly obvious is that God's attitude towards sin, God's attitude towards specific sin at that, has not changed in the least. And in, in pops the liberal church member, in pops the liberal professor of Christianity, and he says, grace, grace, grace. To which we respond, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your glory is not good, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge ye out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. You say, what's he saying? Kick them out of the congregation. Well, so the liberal church member says, well, I, I don't see how that's very gracious. Well, it is very gracious because under the Old Testament law, we're supposed to kill you. You're not getting killed in the New Testament church, are you? I'd say that's grace. Looks pretty merciful to me. <laughs> so you're supposed to purge out in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you purged out by stoning them, by rocking their brains out with stones. So here lies a foundational principle. The principle is that just because God changes His manner of dealing with specific men within a certain period of time, Old Testament, New Testament, law, grace, under specific dispensational arrangements, dispensation means arrangement, so that's a little bit of a redundant term, but just because God deals differently with men under a certain arrangement and then deals with other men a little bit different in, a different in another arrangement, that doesn't mean that God's character has changed. It doesn't mean that His, his righteous, holy character has changed in the least iota. Nothing's changed about God's nature. Nothing has changed about God's attitude towards sin. God's attitude towards sin is not different. It's not different towards your sin just because you're under grace. 
the same God in the Old Testament that said you put an adulterer to death, he's still angry. He is still just as mad at you when you sit at home watching fornication on your television. He's still just as angry. God does not look down at you because you've been born again, because you've experienced the new birth and and look at you with an attitude of tolerance. Now, this is, this is a one, I'm, I'm presenting one side of the argument because there is the fact that you are put in Christ and because of that, Christ loves, God loves you for Christ's sake. I understand all of that, but what I'm talking about right now is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's talking about your state, not your standing. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, hey, you're in Christ, praise the Lord. First Corinthians chapter 2, you're in Christ, you've got the Spirit of God, praise the Lord. But First Corinthians chapter 5, you're a mess, you're a disaster. And so all I'm trying to point out to you tonight is that just because you're under grace, just because you're in Christ, that does not mean that God's going to take a time out and say, well, it's okay. God's not looking at you and saying, well... I understand that fornication is not quite right. I understand that this issue is a big issue. I understand that you've done this, but you're a preacher. Hmm? You're a preacher, and therefore I'll excuse you. Not, not in the least. Not in the least. Just because a preacher is walking around talking with filth out the corner of his mouth while he's getting up behind the pulpit preaching and making a big show acting like an absolute moron of a charismatic. Amen. Just because he's doing that stuff, God's not going to turn a blind eye to the foolishness. God's paying attention to what's coming out of the corner of your mouth behind closed doors when you're smoking cigars. Amen. If you want that fellow's name, I'll give you his phone number. You can call him and ask him who he is. You can find it on the Internet. You say preachers wouldn't do that. Real preachers wouldn't do that, I, I guess. But I know some, pro, some profession preachers would do that. Let me just scratch a little bit of an itch here. You take a guy that commits adultery three different times in a particular church, and the church keeps reinstating him and putting him back in the church and keeps putting him back into the office of, of their pastor and keeps putting him back, keeps putting him back, First of all, you've got to be out of your ever-loving mind to justify a guy like that, a pastor who's committed adultery three different times. But then if you turn around and use the verse out of Romans that says the gifts and calling of God, and this is how it's quoted, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So therefore, hey, God called him to preach just because he commits adultery, God never took that, God's not going to take that away from him because of that. Well, I've got a little bit of an itch to scratch there. Let me put it to you like this. First of all, that verse in Romans is not quoted that way. It doesn't say the gifts and callings, plural. It's many gifts, one calling. There's one calling, brethren. That's a calling that I have and that's a calling that you have. Romans chapter 1, you're called to be saints, among other things. But it's a, it's a sum total of a calling that goes on each person's life. Now, because we all have that same calling, 
there are gifts that are divvied up, so to speak, between us all. And God does that so that we don't get proud against one another and look at one another and say, well, I don't need you and you don't need me. We do need each other. We're part of the body of Christ, right? But if you're going to take this verse and say the gifts and calling of God are without repentance and apply that to a man being a pastor, I don't see in the Scripture where being a bishop is a calling per se. That's an office. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Do you desire to be a pastor? That's wonderful. Ladies, if you desire to be a pastor, I'm sorry, you're disqualified. Okay? We'll get to that here in just a second. But if you desire to be a pastor, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. A bishop then must be, and then he gives qualifications. Well, if you take a fellow who's committed adultery three different times and keep putting him back in the, in the position of a pastor, I think you might need to have your head examined a little bit. The fellow, listen, it's not that you've disqualified the pastor. It's that that guy has disqualified himself by doing what he's doing. You say, so what should we do? Should we kick him out of his church? No, you should leave his church. Leave it. And as you're leaving, pray. Pray that God will deal with him. You say, I, I think that I should really just push him out of, his, out of his church. Whose church is it? It belongs to the Lord if those people are born again. Those are God's people. Leave it. If he's not lining up with the truth, which if a guy's got a problem with adultery, he's not lining up with the truth. He's not lining up with the truth. I don't care what feeling you get when he preaches. I don't care how many young people he ministers to. He's not, he's not preaching the truth. Something's wrong with a guy that's holding on to adultery and fornication and claiming he's a pastor or an evangelist. You say, what do you do? You leave them alone. Get away from them. Amen. Amen. If enough, if enough people leave that guy's church, the church will close. How's the bills going to get paid? It's not, it's not hard to figure out. So this thing of trying to use this verse, the gift and callings, uh, callings, quote unquote, of God or without repentance, that's not even what the verse is talking about. He talk, that calling's a reference to your salvation. God's not going to repent that he saved you, even if you screw it up. And you can. You certainly can. It's not that you're going to lose it, but, buddy, you can mar your testimony in such a way to where folks won't have any respect for you, which is what a lot of preachers and evangelists have done by messing around with fornication. It takes a little bit of a lax attitude. It starts with a little bit of a lax attitude with entertainment, being entertained by fornicators, and then you get entertained by the act. starts with a little bit of immodesty, then you get entertained by the act, and well then, hey, I can start flirting with the ladies, or I can start flirting with the fellas. And then, buddy, once you do that, you've got a hole in the dam, so to speak, and it won't be long before that little trickle of water, before that little pinhole, the force of your Adamic nature but that's being held back by the constraints of righteousness, well, though that constraints, those constraints, that wall, so to speak, will be eroded 
by that Adamic nature. And, buddy, you'll be dealing with a church that's filled with fornicators. Amen. A little bit of a rabbit trail there, but that's true nonetheless. That's true nonetheless. And so all I'm trying to say is that when you come from Leviticus 18 and 20 over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, God hasn't changed his attitude towards you just because you're under grace. Now, God will deal with you differently because you're under grace. Thank God God's not killing you. And thank God that God hasn't told anyone else to kill you. But that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be consequences. It doesn't mean it. So just because God changes his manner of dealing from the Old Testament to the New Testament doesn't mean that God softened his stance. The God that hates fornication in the Old Testament still hates it in the New Testament. And so that leads me to say, you should too. You should hate fornication just as it's laid out in the Old Testament. You say, no, like it's laid out in the New Testament. They go together. I'm telling you, man, I can't tell you how many preachers, how many preachers' kids that I've talked to that when you start trying to take Old Testament passages and deal with them about particular things that are not right or things that are questionable, they'd throw up in your face, uh, that's Old Testament. Okay, big deal. Did, did, God did God have an identity crisis? on the page where it says the New Testament? I don't think so. God knows exactly who he is from Malachi chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1. It's the same God. So the correlation, listen, the correlation between 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Leviticus 18 and 20, it shows two things. First of all, it shows that the New Testament does not operate independently of the old. They operate together. People have this notion, as I just hinted around just a couple of seconds ago, people have this notion that when, the, when Malachi finished writing Malachi chapter 4, between that time and the time that Matthew picked up the pen and started writing Matthew chapter 1, they get the idea that, that God closed the book of the Old Testament and set it up on his shelf and then turned around and opened up a new book with blank pages and started writing an entirely different story. That is not what's going on. Matthew chapter 1 picks up with the same story that ended in Malachi chapter 4 because it's the same God dealing with the same kind of people. It's the same God. It's the same God. It's the same book. It's a book in, in a whole Old Testament, New Testament, one book. By the way, the Apocrypha is not in there. Amen. Just throw that in there for my little Catholic friends. Of course, I don't have any Catholic friends, but if you're Catholic and you're not my friend, that's your fault, not mine. I'll be your friend. I'll tell you the truth, but I'll be your friend. I don't hate you. I hate your church. That's right. I hate the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, you shouldn't hate people. Well, the Lord says that there's people that he hated. Anyways, my phone's trying to talk to me up here. I said church, and it's showing me all the churches in uh, Folkestone, I guess. But anyways, it's the same book, and doctrine found in the Old Testament. Listen, listen, doctrine found in the New Testament is nestled on the foundation of the Old Testament. And listen, let me tell you, that's why a lot of people don't understand the New Testament. Because that's where they spend all of their time reading the Bible. 
You spend all of your time in the New Testament reading from Matthew to Revelation, and you never venture back into the Old Testament because it's boring. And so as a result, there's a lot of stuff in the New Testament that you're never going to be able to understand. Let me give you a little experiment for those of you. For those of you that have read your Bible through several times, let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. In a hypothetical case, if you could drop all of the knowledge that you had from reading Genesis to Malachi and then go read the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews, how much do you think you'd understand? Not much. You say, why? Because just about all of what's in Acts and Hebrews is, a, is based on what you know from the Old Testament. Yes, sir. Uh, let me put it to you like this. If you read the book of Hebrews and don't take into consideration Acts chapter 8, the message of Stephen, there's a lot about the book of Hebrews that you're not really going to get. That's true. If you try to read the book of Acts and don't have a solid understanding of where God started with Israel and then how they ended up in the shape where they at, were at in bondage under Babylon and then just simply knowing the fact that they came from Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and then Rome, you're going to be wondering about what's going on in the book of Acts. You're going to be wondering why, why was it that Jesus Christ showed up on the scene here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not going to make much sense to you. Yeah, you'll know that Jesus Christ died for your sins, but there's a lot of it that's just going to be a big question mark. Why? It's because you don't spend any time in your Old Testament. That's right. The reason that that's the case is because the New Testament and the Old Testament are not disassociated from each other. They're like a hand in a glove that goes right together, and they operate together. Uh, what you find in the New Testament rests on the foundation of what's been laid in the Old Testament. Take your Bible and go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let's look at something very briefly, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to take a look at verse, it would help if I got there myself. Look here in verse 19. Now therefore, this is Ephesians 2 verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You know what Paul's saying there? Paul's pointing back to the fact that this Christian religion that we're, that we're a part of, this the body of Christ, the church, it's not disassociated from all of those prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, it's not something that's disconnected from those fellows. It's something that operates in conjunction with them. It's not disassociated with them. And so, let me be clear, and we'll get to this here in a second. I'm not saying that things are the same between the Old Testament and New Testament, but I am saying that they're not disconnected. They're not disconnected. So that's the first thing that you understand looking at this relationship between 1 Corinthians 5 and Leviticus 18 and 20. The second thing that you can come to understand is that God's law of morality has not changed. God's law of morality has not changed. In the Old Testament, there are many kinds of, I say many, there are three primary different kinds of laws. There are ceremonial laws. 
Uh, when a woman has a child, she's supposed to bring an offering to the temple for her pur purification. Uh, when you sin, you're supposed to bring an offering to the temple for, or to the tabernacle, rather, for purification of sin. At certain times of the year, there are feasts and there are things that you're supposed to bring to the priest. There are things that you're supposed to eat, the Passover, ceremonial laws. There are dietary laws, no catfish. God have mercy. No bacon. We Baptists, man, we'd about die under, but those are dietary laws. But then there are moral laws. Now listen, when the New Testament comes on the scene, when Jesus Christ dies, those ceremonial laws are not done away with. They've been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, those dietary laws, those are things that we don't have to observe anymore, and that's plain from the book of Acts when Peter is sitting up on top of the uh, sitting on top of his roof, roof, waiting for the messengers from Cornelius to come, and God lets manner of unclean beasts come out of heaven, and He says, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." That's plain. It's plain that God's made allowances for us under the dispensation of grace. But the thing that remains the same from the Old Testament to the New is God's morals. And as a result, it's God's moral laws. God's expectations for you have not changed. Everything that was a sin in the Old Testament is still a sin in the New Testament. Now listen, take your Bible, take your Bible and go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to try and explain to you very briefly how God deals with this situation. Romans chapter 8, and I want you to look in verse 3. The Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You see verse 4? He says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. So when Christ dies at Calvary, what, what the Lord was doing was not trying to eliminate the righteous, holy standard of the law. The law has a problem. You know what the, you know what the problem of the law is? You. It's your flesh. What God did is God created a standard according to His own nature. And I say He created it. It's really His nature. He took His nature and He manifested that in what we call the law, the law of Moses. And what that is is that's a, that's a display of His righteous character. And God said, this is my standard. Live up to it. And if a man has any sense, what he does is he takes a look at that law and he says, I don't have the ability to do that. And so what God does is He stands and He points to a cross that was where a man bled and died 2,000 years ago, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and He says, He did it, believe on Him. That's what God's doing. God's not erasing. Listen, God is not erasing the righteous standard that He, create, that he had in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. If it stopped there... There's Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. If it stopped there, then what's to keep you from going and doing whatever the blazes you want to do? Now that you've been born again, well, I believe that He paid for my sins. Well, now I can just go do whatever I want to do. 
That's not how it works. God goes a step farther. God takes his own nature, the divine nature, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, and he takes that nature and he puts it inside you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he says, here's my law. He says, live up to the righteous expectations, live up to the righteous standard of the law. And you say, I can't do it. God said, yes, you can. My own spirit's in you. That spirit is the law. It's the law. And so what Paul's telling you in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, is that the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in you if you walk after the spirit. Walk after the flesh and it won't be fulfilled in you. That righteousness of the law, it won't be fulfilled in you if you walk after the flesh. If you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, it can be. Now, there are some other things to consider, such as the fact that you still have your flesh. You've still got that old Adamic nature right here. What you see, what you're looking at is, the, is my body, it's the flesh. There's still something in there that strives against the Spirit of God. But all I'm telling you is that it is possible for the righteousness of the law to be made manifest in your mortal flesh if you'll submit to the powerhouse that God placed on the inside. Put the key in the ignition, turn the engine over, and drive. Quit pushing the car. Well, I'm saved. I'm under grace. So now I don't have to live according to the standards of the law. That's what we're talking about this evening. I don't have to, listen, I don't have to live according to the standards of the law. In other words, I can take a soft attitude towards fornication because it's not that big of a deal because I'm under grace. Hogwash. God's standards, God's righteousness goes right from the Old Testament into the New Testament. You say, but I by nature in my flesh am a fornicator. Okay, then what God did is God gave you the new birth and put His Spirit in you so that you don't have to do that anymore. There's power to overcome that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. See, here's what the issue is, folks. The issue is not that you can't overcome things. The issue is not that you can't overcome tobacco. The issue is not that you can't overcome beer. The issue is not that you can't overcome gossiping. The issue is more along the lines of the fact that either you don't believe that you can because you don't understand what you got when you got saved, the Spirit of God. You got the, you got the wealth of, the, of eternity when you got saved. So either you don't understand what you, don't ha what you have or you just simply don't want to do right. That's the only two options. That's the only two possibilities. You've been made a partaker of the divine nature. And the main thing that I'm trying to get across to you tonight is that God's standards haven't changed. And so you can make all of the excuses that you want to make, but God has made provision for you to, for you to live a holy life. Thank God. You know, that's freedom from prison. That's freedom from bondage. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You understand, I know that we understand that, that the wages of sin is still death even after you get saved. 
You sin in the flesh, your flesh is going to pay for it. You say, but I'll go to heaven. I understand that. But you're going to have consequences in your flesh. But listen, what God did in His grace, in His grace, you want grace? Here's grace. God said, I understand that you're a sinner by nature, so what I'll do is I'll put my spirit in you. You stink. You're a sinner. So God puts a clothespin on his nose in the person of the Holy Spirit. He puts a clothespin on your nose, and he comes and lives inside of you and says, okay, you're saying you can't do right? I'll do it for you if you just yield to me. That's freedom from prison, man. And so if you sit back and say, well, I, I just can't get victory over it, it's either because of unbelief or because you don't want victory. That's right. Having said that, let me say this, and then we'll move on very quickly. The law has no weakness. The law has no weakness. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem's you. The law could not, listen, the law could not produce spiritual life, not because the law was inadequate, but the law could not produce spiritual life because there's a weakness in your flesh, and that is exactly why God gave the law. You look here in Romans chapter 7, he says in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 10, he said, And the commandment, well, verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment, for sin taking occasion by the commandment, that's the law. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is made good, the commandment, the law, was then that which is good made death unto me? No, but sin. See, what God did is he took, the, took his standard and he set it up next to you and he said, live up to that standard. And what that did is that revealed an utter weakness in your flesh. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. God takes a standard and says, live up to the standard. And you say, well, I can't. If you try, you know what's going to be made manifest in your flesh? You can't. Unless you submit to the Holy Spirit. You submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God gets in there and starts dealing with you about stuff. Now all you've got to do is just submit yourself and be obedient. God says, quit that fornication. Quit that lusting. All you've got to do is just say, yes, sir. liberty that's liberty I just I just don't want to live in such a way where I can't enjoy myself anymore you don't know what enjoying yourself is <laughs> brother Nathan I'm just I'm so tore up about all this stuff that's going on in the country trust the Lord oh, I just I just can't trust the Lord it's either because you, you're living in unbelief or because you don't want to there's something on the inside if you're saved, if you're really born again, which I believe a lot of folks are. There's something on the inside. There's something on the inside that you're not, you've not cut loose yet. You've not given him liberty to live that life that he wants to live in you. God's standards haven't changed, folks. 
God's standards have not changed. Praise the Lord. God, the God of righteousness has not changed between Leviticus and 1 Corinthians. In both places, I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In both places, God's instructions are clear. Get rid of the offender. And we'll deal with this in more depth as we come through the content of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But his instructions are clear in both places. Leviticus 18 and 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, his instructions are clear. Get rid of the offender. Uh, you've heard the saying that one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Well, that's exactly the concept that he's getting across in chapter 5, verse 6. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You take a little bit of yeast and put it in, a, in six cups of flour and mix that stuff in there together and then try to go separate the yeast out of the flour. You'll be, you'll be working for a really long time. And so... So Paul, Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth is don't, don't take a to, an, an attitude of tolerance towards these folks. You put them out. You put them out. You say, that's rough. It's not as rough as getting killed. It's grace. It's grace. Listen, let me ask you something. Why is it so rough? Listen, if a fornicator is in the church, if a fornicator is in the church and that is going to affect the rest of the church. And so that church puts the fornicator out. Why is that rough? What about the rest of the folks in there that are being contaminated with the, with the wickedness? How about, how about grace towards those folks? You see, what's going on is what we talked about this morning. It's an attitude of carnality. I'm the most important thing. Well, my, my daughter got pregnant out of wedlock. How, how dare you put her out of the church? Well, because if we don't, it's going to affect the rest of the church. Yeah, but it's my daughter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, what do you want me to say? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking a casual attitude towards that. that that'd be heartbreaking. But a preacher, preacher's not supposed to stand up and excuse that stuff just because it's Mr. Businessman's daughter or Mr. Deacon so-and-so's daughter, which is what happens. Oh, Mr. So-and-so, he's got a daughter or he's got a boy who go, went out and got drunk, and so he gets locked, locked up in jail, and we'll sweep that under the rug because he puts a good number of dollar bills in the plate or he's a faithful attending member or you know whatever you've got men's persons and admiration because of advantage it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong what's good for the goose is good for the gander God hasn't changed God's no respecter of persons God's a respecter of righteousness and so whether it's the pastor, whether it's a deacon, whether it's a song leader, or whether it's a quote-unquote layman, whatever it is, God's attitude is still the same. Whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament, God still hates fornication. Whether it's under law or whether it's under grace, God still hates fornication. That's right. Now, let me point this out and I'll cut you loose. What, there are some things that have changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are some things that have changed. In the Old Testament, you put them to death. 
In the New Testament, you just put them out of the assembly. You kick them out of the congregation. You say, why is it different? Because though God's character hasn't changed, the way that he communicates that character is different. Because it's a different arrangement. There are things that are different. In the Old Testament, you're not dealing with a church. You're dealing with a nation. And so when you have to deal with, when you have to deal with matters of sin, you deal with it sometimes, according to God's standards, you deal with it with capital punishment. Because it's a nation. Well, why don't we put people to death when they commit fornication in the church? Because the church is not a nation. In the Old Testament, it's, it's not just spiritual, it's a physical matter. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's a literal physical kingdom that you can see. You can see a king sitting on a throne. It's a, it's a theocracy. It starts out as a theocracy and it moves to a monarchy with David. It's a, it's a, it's a kingdom. That's not what the church is. And so we don't go and find a homosexual and pull out the machetes and start chopping them into pieces. We kick them out of the assembly. I don't think anybody in our Baptist churches would be homosexual. You'd be surprised. Give it some time if it hasn't already come to pass. But in the New Testament, you're not dealing with a nation. You're dealing with the body of Christ who assembles in a local congregation. So you don't put them to death. You put them out of the congregation and you pray for them. You pray for them. You put somebody to death, there's no need to pray for them. But we don't put people to death. We put them out of the local assembly and then we pray for them. And we'll cover that when we cover the content of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So listen, here's the takeaway from the message this evening. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. How he deals with people between the two testaments, between the law and grace, quote unquote, it's different. It's different. But movement from the Old Testament does not mean that God is changing his standards at all. But listen, by the same token, let me just make a side note here. By the same token, you can't say that anything hasn't changed, that things haven't changed at all. And so listen, what that leads you, what it, the logical place that it leads you to is a position of dispensationalism. Sure. You can't look at the Old Testament, and I'm not going to go very far on this, just want you to think about this. <clears throat> you can't go into the Old Testament and then look at the New Testament and say that things haven't changed because you would be absolutely insane. Things have changed. Okay, then you've got to be a dispensationalist in some form, whether it's whether you just believe in a couple of dispensations or whether you believe in 1,500 of them. You've got to be able to distinguish between the two. Things are different. But the thing that is not different is the God. And I say the God not, not being disrespectful. Now let me present it to you in this way with an illustration, and then I'll let you go. I have three children, one of which is who, who is acting like a fool right now, and the other one is almost asleep. I have three children. One of them is two, right? Okay. I almost lost out on that. I've got one that's seven, and I've got one that's six. I don't deal with my two-year-old the same way that I deal with my seven-year-old. 
You say, why? The understanding of my nature that they have is different. And so when God deals with men in the Old Testament, particularly a nation, God does not have to deal with the church the same way. You say, why? The, the manifestation of His character, God's given a written record in the Old Testament, but now we grow. We grow from that written manifestation, the law. We grow from that written manifestation to a place of now we're not just being told what to do. Now there's things where God is dealing with the heart. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy. See, God is not just dealing. God's still given rules. He's still given rules in the Pauline epistles. But there's a lot of stuff in there that it's dealing with your heart. It's in the Old Testament too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But buddy, a lot of what's in the Pauline epistles, it's what's going on in that heart, what's going on in that heart, what's going on in that heart. You say, what's going on? God has not changed at all. His principles and His precepts have not changed at all. But what God has done is God has Here's the Old Testament. Here's how I dealt with Israel in the past. Take that, and then on top of that, here's the church. You come to the tribulation. When those Jews are back in the tribulation running from the Antichrist, you know what they've got now? They've got what, what they had in the Old Testament, and now they've got the testimony of the church. Things are going to be wild. Things are going to be wild. All right. Got several rabbits I chased there, but hopefully give you something to think about. Lord, we do thank you, God, for your goodness, Lord. I, I don't think I've probably ever preached a more disconnected, convoluted message. But, Lord, I know, God, that, uh, Lord, there's plenty of truth in there. And I pray, God, that it could be connected enough in the minds of the people that are preached to that, Lord, they would get something from it, God, that they would extract something from it, God, and think about these things. And, Lord, if nothing else, God, to understand that, Lord, your character hasn't changed at all. Your character has not changed at all. The same God that hated fornication in the Old Testament still hates it in the New Testament. And, God, I pray that because of that, when we see a manifestation of your character in the Old Testament that God would not look at that and sweep it under the rug and say, well, it doesn't matter because we're under grace. God, help us, Lord. Help us to recognize how righteous and holy you are, how just you are for having certain expectations of us, God. And help us, Lord, to trust, God, to trust what you've given, who you've given to us, Lord, the Holy Spirit, God, in an effort, God, to, to have the righteousness of the law produced in our mortal flesh, God, I pray. Lord, help us, God. Help us to submit ourselves to you, Lord. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.